Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Uh, Charlotte is with me today and she's very, very excited. Why are you excited, Charlie? I'm excited because we're in early modern history here. We're um, having a fabulous time hanging out in the Renaissance and uh, very much in my wheelhouse. We've got a fabulous guest. We have Leah Redmond Chang with us here today. She's a historian and scholar who writes about women's history through a modern lens. So right up our street, Alex. This is just what we want to hear. Uh, She's taught at George Washington University and was a senior associate at University College London, as well as being the author of two previous books on female authorship and the letters of Catherine de' Medici, who just sounds like a fabulous woman. Leia is here today to tell us all about her new book, Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power, which explores the interwoven lives of three rather formidable women. Hello, Leia. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you. You I've been lucky enough to read a copy of Young Queens and uh, there's a lot to go through. So let's let's kick off. Who are our Young Queens and how are they related? Okay, well, as you said, there are three of them. And we can begin with Catherine de' Medici, who was the Queen Consort of France and then eventually the Queen Mother of France and is really the power behind the French throne for the whole second half of the 16th century. Then we have Elizabeth de Valois, her eldest daughter, who will marry at the age of 14 to become um, the Queen Consort of Spain. And finally, we have Mary Queen of Scots, who's probably the best well-known of the three. And she is sovereign queen um, in her own right of Scotland. She's also Catherine de' Medici's daughter-in-law and Elizabeth de Valois' um, very close friend growing up. Um, she is for about 18 months the queen consort of France as well, so she plays many roles. She's also Catherine's daughter-in-law. <laughs> it's easy to forget <laughs> all the relationships. <laughs> I was already sounding like an episode of EastEnders here in the UK. Yes. It's great. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, how easy was it to find these women's voices? So you write of the correspondence between Mary and Elizabeth that perhaps their notes were easily discarded, the frivolous ephemera of a girlish friendship. How much actually survives? So, okay, it's it's a great question because I, I had many goals with this book, but one of them was definitely to try to uncover these queens as women, to, to try to find their inner lives. And um, that can be hard to do for a host of reasons, but it was very important to me, particularly having written about Catherine de' Medici, who has such a nefarious reputation. She's almost sort of flattened. And so I, I really wanted to bring out the complexity And I thought one way to do that was to really study the relationships between these women. 
And I knew that Elizabeth and Mary had been very close growing up. Um, they shared the same bedroom. Mary's about three years older than Elizabeth, so more like an older sister. But they're very close. Um, and, of course, this means that while they're growing up, there are very few letters between them because they're almost always together. Or if they're apart, it's only for a few days. So no need to no need to write. Um, but one of the things that is quite striking is that um, there are very, very few letters between Mary and Elizabeth once they part ways, once Elizabeth goes to Spain and Mary's in France and then eventually Mary returns to Scotland. Um, we actually have, as far as I know, only one surviving letter, um, and it's from Mary to Elizabeth once Mary is already a prisoner in England um, in 1568. But that letter references a correspondence. So there must have been other letters. We, ju- we just don't know how frequently uh, they wrote to each other. You know, I, I, I would hope that they did. <laughs> I would hope that they they kept it up. Um, and there could be a number of reasons why we don't already we don't have them anymore um one is that there may have been a lapse you know they were young girls together and then when they went off to their married lives you know they got busy doing other things as one does um the other possibility is that um some of those letters were destroyed you know after elizabeth of Valois' death uh philip ii of spain her husband was known to destroy letters so that's um possible and that may be why Elizabeth's own correspondence to a number of people is rather patchy. Um, but there is the other possibility that those letters are still out there somewhere and they haven't been found yet. And I, I don't, you must know, you must know there was recently a rediscoverer of a discovery of a number of Mary Stewart's letters, um, written when she was in prison in England and they're all enciphered. And they were hiding in plain sight, basically, in the archives. It's just that no one knew what they were. Um, so that's really interesting. And they're in the process of being um, transcribed and translated and, and studied now. But, you know, I, I hold out hope that maybe those letters, those those hidden letters or secret letters between Elizabeth and Mary will emerge one day. It just drives me nuts the way that... Um female stuff was kind of disregarded it's still happening in the victorian era i've just written about queen victoria and lord isha the, he shaped the first half a century of scholarship on queen victoria um and ignored everything because he said women writing to other women was dull and pointless and they just talked about nonsense so he just didn't he just cut it out yeah no that definitely happens um and even some of the things that i think were particularly let's we can use elizabeth as an example um uh, dynamics that were going on in her household, her female household, or issues with her health were kind of ignored because this, these were women's problems. And so, you know, but, but there's so much that you can actually glean from that correspondence. Mm. Um, again, that really, really, you know, taps their inner lives. So it's worth looking at again. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Just- with my Queen Victoria thing, I went full throttle down the road of Queen Victoria and her body image issues and her <gasps> yes. motherhood and hating pregnancy and just all the stuff that Isha left out. Yes. And, you know, for me, Elizabeth de Valois, what, what really, and, you know, Charlotte, you would have gotten this from the book. I was just fascinated about all the correspondence around her period. 
Yeah. <laughs> Whether she was having her period, if she wasn't, what could induce it, what they were trying to do to get it to come, what did it mean that she didn't get it? I mean, it's it's all a little bit veiled, but at the same time, they're actually quite chatty about it, and that's fascinating. It's this sort of weird thing we have of historical women living in a vacuum. They never spoke yeah. to each other. They had no friends. They just they were they were born. They did some embroidery. They had babies. And hopefully they survived that and then they died. And this idea of these interwoven, like you say, these, these lives that are so important and how important women's issues are to the whole country, whether or not the, the queen consort of Spain is having a regular period, is capable of conceiving a child is hugely important. Yes, definitely. There were so many politics that turned around it, right? And it's one woman's body, or not even a woman. I mean, she's really a young girl, right? By the time Elizabeth de Valois gets to Spain, she's 14. I I think I said that she was married at 14. She was actually 13. But by the time she gets to Spain, she's she's 14 years old. And in many ways, she's like other 14-year-olds or even kids that we know today. So, you know, I think that's that's worth taking into consideration. There, there has been this, this idea and scholarship in the past that, you know, children grew up fast, that adolescents didn't really exist in the same way. Um, and to a certain degree, that's true, but in many ways, it's also not true. And I think that when you recontextualize the period and look at it through the eyes of an adolescent, like a 14 year old, you know, today, you, you start to think about some of these things a little bit differently. Your book highlights the importance of diplomatic female friendships and and diplomacy in where one um, lays a friendship. Um, The example of Elizabeth and the affair of the ladies in her Spanish court is, is what's coming to mind. Did women in power have to be careful with their friendships? The short answer is yes, <laughs> most definitely. And that is a very hard lesson that Elizabeth learns uh, quite early in her career in Spain. So to sum up quite quickly, um, she gets to Spain. She's 14 again. Um, Elizabeth has just lived through this in- incredibly traumatic time because just after her wedding, her father, Henry II of France, is killed brutally in a jousting accident. Um, and just months later, she has to leave for Spain and leave her family, including her mother, whom she loved very, very much. So this is all very traumatic. And she gets to Spain. And Spain is not... Elizabeth didn't grow up thinking of Spain as a friendly country. Spain was the enemy of, of France. So she's had to make a mental adjustment <laughs> that, you know, suddenly she's going to become queen of Spain and that now Spain is her family and, and, um, and her friends. So in many ways, she's quite isolated and she, she, she looks for fun and companionship where she can. And she finds that in her close circle of ladies who comes with her, um, to Spain and, um, Unfortunately, she makes some bad judgment calls and she puts a little bit too much trust into one of them um, at the expense of some of the more senior members of her entourage. And this causes quite a kerfuffle, not only in Spain, but definitely in the court of France once word gets back to her mother, Catherine de' Medici. And Catherine sends Elizabeth uh, a series of very scolding letters about how she's behaving like a child and not doing what she's told and misplacing her her trust 
Um, and, you know, that is a moment where Elizabeth learns that, you know, what she thinks of as a friendship with a, with a uh, lady in waiting who's about her age, um, that that friendship, that those feelings of intimacy can never be totally mutual. There's a power difference and there's a difference in rank. So where Elizabeth sees in a lady in waiting the possibility of, of a friendship, that lady in waiting sees the possibility of advancement. And that is what Catherine teaches Elizabeth. And she tells Elizabeth, look, that lady in waiting is probably using you. And she's using you to get to your husband, Philip II. And make no mistake, Philip II will use that to his advantage. And I can only imagine what that might have been like for Elizabeth to receive that letter from her mother, that it was crushing. Because not only has she disappointed her mother, but she's lost any possibility of a, of a friendship with a, with a woman that she really liked, or of a true friendship. Um, and, you know, I think that might be one reason why Elizabeth eventually grows so close to her sister-in-law, um, the Princess Juana, who is Philip II's sister. Um, it's because Juana, among other things, there, there isn't the same difference in rank. Um, Juana was a royal princess of Spain. She had also been a queen consort of Portugal. And so they can meet each other on, on very shared terms. And uh, that was rare. So um, in that sense, Elizabeth was actually quite lucky. What do we learn about Catherine's re- uh, relationship with Elizabeth from her letters? Okay, so <laughs> I will try to do justice to Catherine here because I, I really am a fan. I'm really a fan of Catherine's. Um, it's quite complex. Catherine adores her daughter. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth loves her mother. I mean, it's definitely a relationship of respect. Elizabeth feels a lot of filial piety, a lot of uh, loyalty and duty to her mother. But I think there was also very much real affection. Um, and so when Elizabeth leaves, uh, Catherine is, is, is quite distraught. Um, at the same time, um, over the course of months, especially in Elizabeth's first couple of years in Spain, it becomes clear that, uh, you know, Catherine is quite a hovering mother and very invested in remaining a part of her daughter's life, not only as a mother, but as, um, a, you know, a political influencer. She wants to exert a certain amount of political influence over Elizabeth. And she hopes that Elizabeth carries that influence into the court of Spain. So you can kind of see Catherine's tendencies to become a controlling mother <laughs> develop. I think that they were probably already there, but they become um, more pronounced over the course of these first couple of years. And to some degree, that is because of the political situation in France, which is incredibly tenuous at the time. And Catherine really needs Elizabeth to do what Catherine wants her to do. So she exerts this um, this kind of helicopter uh, control um, as best she can through her letters and through her letters to ladies, uh, to the ladies in Elizabeth's entourage. Um, and Elizabeth responds. I mean, she, she, she obviously, um, she, I think she kind of has that oldest child syndrome where she uh, doesn't really want to rebel. You know, she, she wants, she wants to be the good daughter. Um, and, and that's how it goes 
pretty much almost until Elizabeth um, dies at the age of 20, 22. Gosh, I mean, we we should say that we're we're sort of framing this episode very much on the relationship between these three women rather than attempting to do three cradle to graves because there is so, so much. But it's worth saying that, you know, a lot of what Catherine is asking Elizabeth to do, even though it seems pushy and seems awful, is nothing that she herself didn't have to do. And almost the same as her mother as well, being sent to other countries to marry into royalty in in Catherine's case, um, wealth in her mother's and, and this sort of idea of marriage for diplomacy. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that this is, you know, well, this is the role that royal and aristocratic women play. And so what Catherine is asking Elizabeth to do is really no different, as you say, than what Catherine in many ways herself had to do. It's just that the political stakes, um, when Elizabeth was a young, was a young bride were much higher, perhaps mm-hmm. even than when Catherine and, and Catherine did not marry a king or even the heir. At the time that Catherine marries um, the future Henry II, he is a second son. His older brother is still alive, and it's his older brother who's slated to marry, uh, I'm sorry, to um, inherit the throne. So so, so the pressure on Catherine is a little bit different um, than it is um, on Elizabeth. By the time Elizabeth arrives in Spain, there's this uh, new reign in France. Uh, her older brother, who's still a teenager, has inherited the throne. And so things are definitely a little bit precarious politically. Um, but also, you know, the, the the reform in France has really reared its head. And the kingdom is quite factionalized in terms of religion. And there's already the suggestion that maybe this could eventually end in civil war. So there are a lot of efforts to, to, to find ways both within the kingdom of France and using international diplomacy to keep the peace. And that burden is placed on Elizabeth as well. Well, let's talk about the, 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 um, the third in our mix. And again, the one that we perhaps in the UK know most about that's, Let's talk about Catherine and, and Mary Stuart. So Mary is Catherine's daughter-in-law. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, she's not anymore. Um, how did Catherine's <laughs> relationship with Mary change after the death of Francis II? So um, for, first, if I can, let me talk a little bit about the relationship before the death of Francis II. Um you know, I actually find this relationship between Catherine and Mary to be very fascinating, particularly uh, when Mary is a child, partially because we actually can't be totally sure um, what it was like. I think there's this thing that happens, particularly with historical women who are very well known. Um, we, we often take the histories that are, have already been written as um, fact, Right even though there's a fair bit of speculation that goes into the writing of any history. So so when we go back to the primary sources, you know, we have all of that history that's already been written in our heads, and we evaluate um, the primary sources through that lens. And I and I tried really hard not to do that. <laughs> of course, you know, you can't always succeed, but I tried really hard not to do that. So one of the things when when that really struck me is how enamored Catherine was of Mary Stuart when Mary first arrives in France as a child at the age of five. I mean, you know, the reports all over the place are glowing, but Catherine really seems to share um, in, in that sort of um, 
awe of Mary as a young little little child sovereign queen. Um and, and Mary has a lot to, you know, going for her. She's she's quite beautiful, she's very charming, she's um effectively a refugee, so everyone feels sorry for her. Her mother, Mary of Guise, was very well liked at the court of France, so everyone is disposed to 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 like the little Mary Stuart. Um and that seems to continue. And we have a lot of evidence of Catherine certainly doing her duty um, as a kind of mother figure to the young girl who is already slated to become to, to marry Catherine's son. It's not official yet, but it's it's already kind of a definitely a soft promise. And um, so, for instance, um, we know that at, at times when Mary was ill, Catherine was there. At one point, Catherine stays up all night at Mary's bedside when she's quite critically ill. And Mary's uncle says it's only because of Catherine that Mary survives. Um, we know that Catherine taught Mary to embroider and that, you know, embroidery was very, very important to Mary throughout her life. And Mary uh, really admires Catherine as a writer. Mary, Mary loves, loves her pony, Madame Royale. <laughs> and she writes this gushing <laughs> letter to her mother about what a good writer Catherine is. And, you know, she clearly wants to, uh, to emulate her. So there's a lot of affection between uh, Mary as a young girl and um, Catherine. The thing is, Catherine was very good at hiding her feelings, at doing one thing and, and putting a certain face on things and hiding her feelings. So we can't be entirely sure of how Catherine felt about Mary. But as Mary grows older and, you know, enters her teens, um, there does seem to be a little bit more friction. And certainly um, by the time that Francis becomes king as a young teenager, and all of this is very unexpected, Catherine starts to distrust Mary. Um, and, or at least the seeds of that distrust are there. And that is because Mary is probably first and foremost a dutiful member of the Guise family. And once Francis becomes king, the Guise really take over as the power players behind the throne. And their policies are not always ones that Catherine agrees with. Um, and she's also quite worried about the fate of her other children under, you know, a, a Guise rule. So, so, so she starts to distrust or be quite worried about the Guises and she starts to mistrust Mary because she really sees her as a kind of agent you know, for the Guises. Um, all right. Then when Francis dies, um, you know, the relationship really frays. And again, this isn't necessarily Mary's fault. Um, Mary does seem to display a certain arrogance. You know, the fact that she is a sovereign queen, uh, that she's related to the Guises, that she was once the queen consort of France. You know, Mary, Mary kind of internalizes all these things. And, and so she exhibits um, a certain arrogance that might have, that Catherine might have found off-putting. But the reason why, the, the real reason why Catherine really distrusts Mary is because she knows that the Guises are going to try to use her in another one of these diplomatic political marriages um, that will benefit the Guises ultimately and not necessarily the kingdom of France. By this time, you know, again, as I've said, you know, that the, the factualizing around religion is really, really fraught. 
um, Catherine is much more of a peacemaker, whereas the Guises are increasingly, you know, hardline Catholics who would like to see Protestantism, any hint of Protestantism eradicated in France. And, and Catherine is very worried that they will use Mary as a kind of marriage pawn in order to achieve their aims. Um, so, so whether or not it was personal or just entirely political, by then, you know, Catherine is quite eager to cut any sort of tie with Mary. She doesn't seem to feel any sort of obligation to her, um, even though she had been, um, you know, kind of in her inner circle for quite a while and at the court of France um, and, and, and her daughter-in-law for 18 18- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Let's talk about Mary a bit more. Let's talk about her as a trendsetter. Um, what do we know about the impact of her return upon the Scottish court? So, so it's an interesting question. She did, um, you know, she, she gets back to, to Scotland and even though Mary of Guise, uh, surrounded herself, you know, as much as possible with French men and women and, um, you know, uh, worked hard to bring French style to Scotland, Mary, uh, definitely seemed to want to do that as well. And in fact, perhaps the pressure was more on Mary to do that, a, a kind of, you know, internal pressure for herself. Let me just say at first that it's not entirely clear that Mary wanted to return to Scotland. Um, she makes the decision and she's not really given much choice. There's not much else for her to do. And, and, and the Scots want her back. I mean, she is the sovereign ruler of Scotland. She really, you know, should be back there. She, she kind of dawdles for a little bit. She remains in France for quite a while. Um, because she, um, she's really hoping that another marriage will come her way and, you know, she can get married and go off to that kingdom. Um, but it doesn't really happen. So eventually she has to go back to Scotland. And I think that once she gets back to Scotland, uh, she doesn't really want to be there. Um, one of my favorite biographies is Jenny Wormald's uh, biography of Mary, Queen of Scots. And she calls Mary a reluctant ruler. And we can talk more about that in a second. But I, but I, in many ways, I think that's true. So Mary is trying as hard as possible to bring France back with her to Scotland. Um, and that includes, I think she brings over a hundred courtiers with her. You know, she, she brings, um, you know, musicians, uh, artists, uh, all the gifts she's ever received in France. And she brings, um, embroiderers, um, and, you know, other, 
other uh, p- uh, people who are in charge of her wardrobe. And she, you know, often sends away to France um, to try to, uh, you know, bring as much as French style as she possibly can. So she's definitely surrounding herself. You know, she's kind of bringing Scotland up a notch. And the Scots were always eager to see this. Um, Mary of Guise tried to do the same thing. She's bringing um, Scotland up a notch um, in terms of style, not only her clothes, but how she, um, uh, you know, decorated her palaces. But at the same time, I, I you know, I, I can't help but see in this also this effort to kind of refuse to be where she actually is. You know, that she, she, she really wants to still kind of play that role that she enjoyed so much as Queen Consort of France. And so she's finding ways to bring that through fashion, um, you know, through the decoration of her palaces back to Scotland. It, it's a really interesting, um, conundrum that we have with, with Mary. So as Queen Mother, Catherine, doesn't need to remarry that's that's not she doesn't have to she's kind of fine she's got enough heirs and spares to kind of keep going and she gives herself this fabulous title of queen mother but it's very different for mary stewart um tell us tell us a bit we we, we've touched on this just a bit i think we should talk about her search for a second husband do you think Mm -hmm. she preferred being a queen consort to being queen regnant I think so. I, I think she was raised to be a queen consort um, by the Guises. And I should I, I should clarify that. So so Mary was the reigning queen of, of Scotland, but in some ways the more prestigious role, and certainly the role that would have been more advantageous to the Guises, was to be the queen consort of France. So by the mm-hmm. time she gets to France as a five-year-old, they're really raising her to um, internalize and that role. I mean, I think she was being taught to walk the walk, <laughs> you know, the Queen <laughs> Concert of France from the time she was five years old. And for her, that is um, sort of the pinnacle. Uh, you know, she, she, she draws her, her sense of importance from the fact that she's the reigning queen of Scotland. But in terms of what she felt, like her her sort of inner sense of her prestige, I think that comes from being the queen consort of France. Um, and, you know, it's very hard for her to relinquish that. When when Frances dies, again, she's she's only a teenager. She's 18 years old. And, and I think that if we put ourselves back into those sort of 18-year-old shoes, you can kind of look at her with a lot of sympathy, right? Like her whole sense of self has just been utterly destroyed. Um, and now she's, like you said, more or less, she packs herself off or she, you know, is packed off back to Scotland. And she has to adopt this new role that she... She wasn't really trained very well for. She kind of let all the ruling of Scotland, um, she gave that over either to her mother or to her uncles. Um, so, so in some ways, you know, she's back in Scotland, but she, she would rather that someone else sort of do this for her. She also has another problem, which is that a little bit like France, but perhaps even more so, the nobility in Scotland is increasingly Protestant. And they don't love that Mary herself, her her personal, you know, sort of uh, conf- confessionally, she is a Catholic and plans to stay that way. So there's a bit of friction, you know, between her and her subjects. So 
I, I think that Mary couldn't really conceive of doing this completely by herself. Um, you know, she's at odds with her nobility. She's 18 years old. She's never really been forced to, to kind of stand in a ruler's shoes and do this completely by herself. And so she's looking for another marriage, um, that will help her, uh, you know, sort of garner strength, but maybe even another king who can do the role ruling for her. So she first looks, right, she first looks to Spain. I, I, you know, I think ideally she wanted to marry Don Carlos, um, of, of Spain. He's the Prince of Spain, mostly because she wants Philip II, the King of Spain, to, you know, take over. That doesn't work out. She was also hoping to marry Charles IX, um, her former brother-in-law, but Catherine puts an end to that. Um, and eventually she quite famously and notoriously ends up with um, Henry Stewart, her cousin, Henry Stewart, Lord Darnley. And, uh, you know, she does so for many reasons. First of all, because most of her other options are exhausted one way or the other, but also because Mary has by now thrown herself full throttle into her most infamous obsession, which is that she wants to become the heir to the throne of England. And she thinks that by marrying Lord Darnley, who is um, in line for the English throne, she is more likely to get that English succession. Which leads us to the fact that there was no way we were getting through this without mentioning the bloody truth <laughs> of there. <laughs> right, okay. No, like, I know. <laughs> the tutors. Oh. Yeah, we, we have a mantra here that's not safe for work uh, with regards to tutors. Uh, but... How does Mary's relationship with Catherine and Elizabeth then affect her relationship with Elizabeth Tudor? Okay. Well, <laughs> we have to go there. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah, have we to do. go there. All right, all right, all right. Um, okay. So I, I, I think, you know, again, Mary is very close as a child to Catherine. She's very close to Elizabeth. Um, she's raised by the Guises to trust family. And I think that she thinks, mistakenly, that Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, is her cousin and therefore is going to be her ally. Um, I think she she thinks this for quite a while. Um, and Elizabeth kind of leads her on. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of it tries to not necessarily reveal the fact that, uh, that, that she, Elizabeth, doesn't trust Mary one bit. <laughs> Um, and it, it may be that Elizabeth Tudor had some sympathy, you know, for Mary, but politics demanded that almost by definition, they were going to be, um, enemies. And that's because Elizabeth Tudor herself doesn't feel very secure on her, on her throne. Um, but, um, I think the other, the other way to look at it is to look at it a little bit differently, like how Mary's a relationship to Elizabeth affects her relationship to Catherine. Um, so, you know, I think once Mary becomes very obsessional about the English crown, the English succession, you know, she tries hard to befriend Elizabeth and, uh, Catherine herself finds this very threatening. Um, and that is because, you know, England and France have always had like, you know, every kingdom in Europe at the time, this on again, off again friendship. Sometimes they're enemies, sometimes they're friends. It all happens, you know, it all depends on alliances. But increasingly, you know, Catherine gets very, very worried about the old alliance between Scotland and France, this this relationship. It's a political alliance 
between Scotland and France, which has been very useful for kind of, um, you know, uh, staving off threats from Spain, um, showing that France has, you know, imperial capabilities and imperial ambitions to rival Spain. And it also gave them control over the channel so that Spain couldn't drive their ships up to um, Spanish Flanders. Um, and sh- what she's worried about, what Catherine is worried about, is that Elizabeth and Mary will become bosom buddies and suddenly Scotland will renounce the old alliance and that will open the gateways, basically, for Spain to to make a move on France or at least to pursue more of its imperial ambitions that um, that that France fears. I don't know if that answers your question. Um, <laughs> Absolutely does. I mean, because these are these are bits that we we don't always think about. We think about the the, the power struggle between Mary and Elizabeth, as in Elizabeth well, Tudor, Elizabeth I. We don't think about the fact that this is part of something so much bigger in terms of European dynastic um, foreign policy. It's, it's a big deal whether they get on. Well, and it's so it's very geopolitical, right? And actually, it's very tied to geography and the importance of that of that channel, the importance of yeah. cutting off the waterways between, you know, Habsburg, Flanders and Spain. And in the meantime, like Spain is sending ships out to the New World. So, you know, they, they have to find these ways um, to to kind of um, put the brakes on 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 Spain. So so yes, there are these sort of personal relationships between Mary and Elizabeth, but indeed they that it's all part of a, a much bigger geopolitical conflict. Okay, so talking about big European picture here, all of all of our queens here, all, all three, we're gonna we're gonna park Elizabeth Tudor for a while. Just just put yeah. her out. <laughs> she can be over she can be all popular over there on her own. Um all three queens struggle to manage the emergence of protestantism we touched on this a little bit but it's coming it's coming everywhere across europe what do we know about their different approaches to managing this threat okay so you know first let me preface the answer by saying it, it does a little it does depend a little bit on their rank right and the relative power that they exert in their own kingdom um so the difference here between a queen mother a queen consort and a sovereign queen is going to be quite important Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Catherine, you know, it, it, it's, it's really kind of terrible that Catherine has this, uh, nefarious reputation because for much of her reign, she was really something of a peacekeeper and she really strived to, um, create, uh, some sort of toleration in the kingdom of France. As much as possible, she wants to avoid civil war. She completely fails at that. I mean, the whole second half of the century is uh, in France is just um, defined by civil war. But she's constantly picking up the pieces after each um, conflict and and trying again. I mean, that's what I really love about Catherine. She never really gives up. She just she just keeps trying. Um, Elizabeth, it's a little bit different. So so remember, she she's in Spain by the time she's thirteen and. Um, when she leaves, um, Protestantism is a real threat in France, but it hasn't exploded quite yet in the way that it would within a few years' time. And her own father, Henry II of France, um, who was quite a pious Catholic, um, he was quite rigorous in his persecutions of Protestants. So the, the France that Elizabeth is leaving is more 
is more Catholic um, than it is certainly, you know, even five years, five years later. And then she arrives in very Catholic Spain. Um, she's very much under the influence of her sister-in-law, Juana, who is very pious herself. And of course, Philip, who is um, quite celebrated, right, for his for his Catholicism. And in fact, the, the Spanish king and queen are known as the Catholic monarchs. <laughs> They're supposed to be like the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, Catholic uh, sovereigns in Europe. So Elizabeth doesn't really have any sympathy for Protestants at all, but she does have a lot of sympathy for her mother. Um, and she you know, to the extent that she's a queen consort, so she doesn't really exert any power, or any influence, but, you know, I, I think she believes in the Inquisition, and I think she believes that a, um, that a clear eradication of Protestantism in France is the only real path forward. But at the same time, her loyalty um, as a daughter, but also as a sister to her, to her brothers to become the king of France dictates how um, she goes about it. So even though she doesn't necessarily buy into her mother's policies of toleration, she wants to help her mother. So she tries to advocate um, for those policies to her husband. Um, but she doesn't have the same kind of problem because uh, even though Protestantism does flare up now and again in Spain, it doesn't represent the same kind of political and religious threat as it does in France. Mary, it's a completely different story. <laughs> um, Protestantism had already really started to um, uh, proliferate among the nobility in Scotland, thanks to John Knox. And that was already happening during the regency of her mother, Mary of Guise. So when she comes back, you know, she, she, she's not really interested in eradication. She needs her nobles. Um, so she, she wants to make peace with them. And she also very much needs her half-brother, Lord James. Um, this is her illegitimate half-brother, and he is a Protestant. Um, she needs him for, you know, her counsel, for stability in the kingdom, and she needs him because she thinks that he's going to help her get the English succession. So she plays very nice. <laughs> she plays very nice with the Protestants, but eventually that, you know, that got her into trouble for a host of reasons, not least because, you know, I, I think that they, uh, probably the Protestant nobles, but also certainly other monarchs, um, really questioned her loyalty to Catholicism or her, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but her commitment um, to mm. Catholicism. So she was seen as a weak monarch, both within her kingdom and from outside of Scotland's borders. She did well to play nice with anyone who listened to anything John Knox said, because he didn't have a lot of nice things to say about women in general and women on yeah. the throne, even less so. <laughs> <laughs> But she keeps trying with John Knox. She meets with him several times. I mean, you know, Mary isn't, uh, I have to give Mary credit. I mean, she does, she does try. Um, you know, I think it was my editor who said, uh, you know, she just wishes Mary would make other decisions, other choices. But, you know, I, I do too. And maybe she would have fared better. But to some degree, you know, we're not there with her in that moment. You know, maybe she made the only choices that she, she thought she could at the time. Well, okay, let me just say this about the murder of Lord Darnley. 
so the short answer is no, I don't think she, I don't think she did it. I don't think she, uh, she had a murder, but I do want to say that that particular question was not as interesting to me as how that murder was received, whether or not her people thought that maybe she did it, or even if they didn't, how quickly um, public opinion was sort of, um, uh, you know, against her. And then also what, you know, foreigners from, you know, whether it was in France or Spain, what, what they thought about how she handled that. That to me is more interesting because it speaks a little bit more about her complete powerlessness in that, in that situation. And that tension, um, is, is the thing I think that really, um, uh, that that really interests me. It's it's that here is this woman and she's the queen regnant of Scotland and she should have so much power, but because of this murder, all of a sudden it just turns against her and there's it almost seems like there's there's nothing that she can do. And that dynamic is really fascinating to me. It's probably a story that a lot of our listeners are familiar with, but we got overexcited and we've just been talking about <laughs> <laughs> we've just been talking about the the quote unquote, probably murder of Lord Darnley, Mary Stuart's husband, who was found outside his castle, which was on fire, but he's been strangled. He was strangled and his body left in an orchard. I I, I think that the prevailing thought is that probably Mary's half-brother, Lord James, had something to do with this. Um, He was quite eager to, um, you know, more or less co-opt the, the, the throne. And that's effectively what he does, um, after Mary is deposed. Um, if you want an interesting little tidbit that did not go into the book because I didn't know what to do with it. I actually walked around for days wondering what to do with it. Um, Catherine's reaction to Lord Darnley's murder is very interesting. She mentions it in a letter to, um, to the admiral, um, Oh, sorry, the, the, uh, the constable, Momoncy, who is, uh, you know, a, a longstanding friend of hers. And she's so nonchalant about it. She says, Oh, he's died. If he had behaved better, he'd probably still be alive. And then she goes on to talk about how she and her son are on tour and staying in this really nice place. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, I just wondered, like, did she know about, did she possibly know about this, that this death was coming? But I almost don't want to go there because it's entirely speculation. But that nonchalance was very curious to me. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We've run out of time, but I do want to oh, know no. go. So how inevitable is it then that the Scottish will depose her as soon as she's given them a male heir to take her place? So I, I don't, I don't know that it's inevitable. You know, it feels like almost nothing is inevitable. Although I, I do think that these things turn sometimes on the smallest decisions. Um, but I, I do think that what is so ironic and really tragic here is that by giving birth to not only a live and healthy child, but a boy, who would become the future king of Scotland, Mary has done her duty as, as a queen, not, not, it's, it's not only queen consorts, but sovereign queens and their chief, their number one duty is to provide an heir for the throne. And she does it. And when he's born, she finds so much solace in that. But in the end, 
that is what allows her nobles to depose her because they already have this boy who they can elevate as king and, you know, form a regency around him and they don't need her anymore. So in some ways, the very, you know, it was a, it was sort of a lose lose situation. The very, the very fact that she does her, her, she succeeds as a queen and gives an heir to the throne is the thing that, that proves her undoing. Leia, we knew this was going to be a mammoth task to try and squeeze these three incredible women into one episode. So we're just going to have to say people are going to have to buy and read Young Queens. <laughs> <laughs> when when can they do this? When is, when is it out in the UK, Leia? It is out in the UK on May 11th, so just in a few weeks. Fantastic. Well, we're going to put that in our bookstore and get a link up to it, Alex, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. Jeff Bezos can suck it with his rocket fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.